The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. It is God's who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, They have made for themselves God of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids zone sign. If it is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Thank you, Steve. Well, good morning. My name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we're glad you're here with us uh, this morning. 
could be anywhere and you're here. You could be running the half marathon and you're not. Uh, so let's start training, guys. Step it up. Um, we've been journeying with the uh, Israelites in the book of Exodus from Egypt to the promised land. We're seeing how God provides things for them. And then this morning we'll look at the provision of mercy. But to begin, I want to tell you about my driving record. Um, when I was in high school, we went to a uh, friend's soccer game and cheer on the ladies of our school of peers. And we all went and caravaned, and as the game finished, went to the parking lot, what we realized was that some of the keys were locked in the car. And when you're in high school and you're tasked with uh, making adult decisions with sound reason and thought, it's an impossibility. And so what we did was uh, pile eight people into a Toyota Avalon. Uh, the car was owned by a friend's grandmother of ours, so naturally I drove it. And then the person who sat in the front seat had a torn ACL. So myself, the front seat girl, and then six people in the back uh, of this Toyota Avalon. So we're driving, and we're driving down the road, and we're hitting this uh, part uh, uh, where there's a bit of a speed trap. It's a long, drawn-out highway, no stop signs, uh, no stop lights, and you kind of want to open, open the, the throttle and let the horses run. And so I was going about 50 and it was a 35, and what we see, uh, everyone in the car but me, is uh, a police car sitting on the corner of the uh, side of the road, and all, uh, all but mine, uh, so that's, uh, let's see, 14 eyeballs in the car, say, Ben, there's a, there's, a, there's a police officer right there. I think to myself, you know what? If I slam on the brake, that's gonna look suspicious. So I'm just gonna let gravity do its thing, it's done it for a long time, I'm just gonna slow, naturally slow down. And you, of course, see the fallacy in that logic. Uh, the blue lights come on. They pull us over. Everyone gets a ticket for no uh, seatbelt. I get a ticket for speeding. And I've got to go uh, to court. So I go to court, and my dad's a, an attorney. He's a lawyer. And my dad said, son, I'm going to go with you uh, to plead your case as you, as you go to court. And I said, thank you, dad. He says, but I'm not going to say a word. You're going to have to talk to the judge. And I said, come again? So we go, and it's my turn to go up there and explain what happened, and uh, my law career began that day, and it ended that day too, because what had happened was I put my foot so far into my mouth that I started talking to the judge, and what, how it all ended was my dad stepped in and pleaded my case to this man. Amid errors that pin you down as guilty, it's important to have a person to go to bat for you. That's exactly what we see here in Exodus 32. It's an old story, maybe familiar to some, maybe brand new to others. Uh, but what we see here is there is a deep need to have someone go to bat for us amid our guilt. And we'll kind of unpack that and more in this chapter. We'll see, we'll see three things. We'll see... Uh, the inception of idols, intervening uh, amid idols, and then third, the mercy amid idols. But as we look at this old text and, and have today in mind, ourselves in mind, our, our hearts in mind, let's pray as we study God's word together. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes that we may see ourselves clearly so that we may see you all the more clear. Lord, would you open our eyes that we would see uh, you clearly, 
so we understand and see ourselves all the more clearly. By the power of your spirit, would you meet us this very day, every part of us? Lord, this is a passage with much in it. So would you, Lord, disturb the comfortable and would you comfort the disturbed as we see you, King Jesus, having walked out of the tomb, may we walk out with you, leaving our idols behind. We pray that in your name. Amen. Uh, so first we see the inception of idols, the inception of idols. In Exodus, Moses has delivered uh, the people, led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness. And uh, in Exodus 19, chapter 19, he's gone up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, to get other laws of how the people should live, uh, and then also the, the, the blueprints for the tabernacle, how God will meet his people in this place called the tabernacle. And so from chapter 19 to chapter 31, we see this uh, kind of monologue, dialogue with Moses and God of, of the plans. Well, meanwhile, back at camp, uh, stuff's happening, and we'll unpack it. Uh, but as Moses is coming down from the top of Mount Sinai to the foot of Mount Sinai where the people are, God says, hey, just so you know, this is what you're about to walk into. Uh, the people have uh, made uh, a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. And the people are saying, this is the person, this is the God that has led us out of Egypt and brought us here. And things are going awry. And he describes this scene, and Moses will see that, that very scene. And so that's the scene we're going to unpack. And we're going to see this thought behind idolatry in it. And idolatry makes its way, kind of itself known in two distinct ways in this scene. Uh, first is kind of blatant, the idolatry of the people with the golden calf. And then the other thought is wrongly worshiping God, where Aaron, this, this second in command with Moses, uh, wrongly uh, provides worship. And there's a helpful summary uh, that Caleb Gregson said, and he says this. He says, worship of false gods and false worship of the true God both are both false worship. We see both those things in this passage. So first, let's look at that idea of, of worshiping false gods. The people of Israel have these false gods. They've called something uh, ultimate, given it esteem, worshiping it. And in, in verse 1, it says this, uh, When the people saw that Moses uh, delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So the, the Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years, and they've been led out of Egypt, and they're new with this relationship with God and this relationship with Moses. They've heard about him, yeah, and the stories of their ancestors, but, but really seeing God, knowing God, they're new at it. And so for them, they go to Aaron, the second in command, and say, hey, that, that Moses guy that, that led us out, he, uh, he's nowhere to be found. And the God who came with him, we don't know where he is either. And so what we want you to do, Aaron, is make for us these statues, these idols, like we had in Egypt. We worship the gods of the Egyptians. So make us something we can see right now because we don't know where our leaders are. We don't know what the future looks like. And here we see that there's the inception of idolatry. And the inception of idolatry is the same for us and for the Israelites and for Adam and Eve. 
because of the beginning and the story of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we see how Satan comes, and he's not original. He goes off of what God has said, and he goes to Adam and Eve, and he said, did God really say? He's instilling this doubt about uh, the goodness of God and also the good life of the future, of the runway ahead of them. Did God really say that you would die if you ate the fruit, Adam and Eve? Did God really say, Israelites, that he would lead you out of Egypt to the promised land? Because guess what? He and Moses are nowhere to be found. Right? Did God really say he'd be good to you in your life right now, that he'd take care of you, that you would, be, you would know no lack, that Jesus is enough, that your sin is not any bigger than him? Did God really say? That's where the, the inception of idolatry uh, begins because... When we ask that question and hear that question, we respond to it and answer it, or at least anxiously answer, because we doubt our future and God's plan for us and God's provision for us, his protection of us. And that's where we're teed up to go find solace and satisfaction somewhere when we look to the future. Uh, there's this book by C.S. Lewis, uh, a thinker uh, in the last kind of hundred years, and, and it's called The Screwtape Letters. And the screw tape letters is these letters between a senior devil and a junior devil. And they're talking about how to thwart and twist and um, kind of encapsulate uh, you. How, how devils and, and um, Satan deals with humanity. And we see kind of their game plan and their thought. Um, and it says this. It says, from a senior devil to a junior devil. He says, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, ambition look ahead. All, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. And for the Israelites, they look to the future and they're like, we don't, we don't have a leader. We don't have this God that lead us out. Make for us a God now that they will go before us, they tell Aaron. We want something secure and we want to be safe and we want solace now. And we will give our affection and our attention to anything that promises that. And also in this, we see a kind of a model of idolatry for them and for us. That we see the pieces of idolatry. For humanity, we see that the pieces of idolatry. Again, Satan is not original. He goes off of what God has called good, and he thwarts it and twists it. And the pieces of idolatry is something God has given us that is then thwarted and twisted. What is the golden calf made out of? It says it in verse two. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. These, this gold is the material made for the tabernacle. And it's gonna be taken and wielded for the golden calf. The pieces of idolatry are the things that God has given us. But, but there's also the process of idolatry the process of idolatry. And it's that we don't wake up someday and say, you know what, today's the day. I, I'm gonna become idolatrous. Let's just try it out. We craft it and we wield it and we fashion it to the way we like it, slowly one step at a time with great attention. And Aaron, it says here that in verse four, he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. He crafted it, chose it, created it. The process of idolatry is that it's our precious and therefore we will give great attention to it. 
but we see also the product of idolatry. What does it do to us? In this passage, we see that they drank and they ate. They had a, it said revelry. It said they just had a, a rager, essentially. That they're in the camp and they're having this crazy rager and um, we don't know what the golden calf was, what it looked like exactly. One thought is that it's um, the Egyptian god Apis. And Apis was the god of fertility. And so you can probably read between the lines and see that they were doing actions that represented fertility. And what it says is amid this rager, this party, this kind of just off-the-rails um, soiree, is that the enemy nations, the neighboring nations, looked at them and laughed at them, mocked them, made fun of the Israelites because of what they were doing at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf. That is to say, the product of idolatry is reason is out the window. You act as you want to, as you see their promise, Reason is out the window, but all of those things, the pieces, the process, the product, all those things are because there's a promise of idolatry. We choose idols, they choose idols, because idolatry promises us something. We'll get satisfaction from it. We choose idols because there's an easy and appealing yes to it. It could be a quick promise or We choose idols because the long run, the long haul, it's going to be something good and there's a big thing waiting for you as you give yourself over to an idol. So, the idol of a false god is born from questioning God's goodness and then the kind of the road to what we would deem as the good life. False gods. But there's also another type of idolatry here and it's it's seen with not the people but with Aaron the second in command, and he has this false worship, this false worship. What has happened is the the entire nation has said, hey, this mob kind of has surrounded Aaron. Aaron versus a lot of people. And this a lot of people say to him, hey, um, it says up, make for us an idol. It's pretty much saying, hey, it's one versus everybody. Make for us an idol, Aaron. And Aaron's like, okay. And so he grabs all his stuff from them and he makes it. And it says, um, after he's made it, it says in verse four, it said, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He builds this statue Everyone starts worshiping it. Everyone starts saying, hey, this is the God that actually took us out of slavery, freed us. This is the God right here, this golden calf. And Aaron thinks to himself, this has gotten out of hand really fast. And so he puts an altar next to it and says, hey, um, we're going to worship God tomorrow. We'll have a feast tomorrow to, to the Lord, not to this calf, but to the Lord. And he synchronized this, this worship of a calf and the worship of God all because he worships himself. He doesn't want the people to think bad of him. He doesn't want to have the hard conversation with the people. And that's all because he worships his own comfort and himself. Therefore, he should say yes to anything that comes his way as long as he's safe. The false worship is produced from worshiping himself, covering his own skin, his own hide. And therefore, Even as the people are diving into idolatry, he kind of slaps his spiritual veneer to it. 
and says, hey, we're going to have this little altar right here next to this calf. Again, with uh, screw tape letters, where C.S. Lewis says, how do we entrap and entangle humanity? It says this. It says a moderated religion is as good for us, Satan, the devil is the enemy, is as good for us as no religion at all. And it's more amusing. What did the enemy nations do as they looked at Israel? They laughed. It was a show. And both false gods, the golden calf, and false worship, worshiping ourselves and protecting ourselves, we see idols are born from a desire of worship. Again, they wanted to see something to lead them out because the leaders had left them, Moses and God, it seemed like. And for Aaron, he wanted to worship, and he wanted to worship himself. Now, we fail to look at this passage if we don't hold up a mirror. Or if we just see a story and leave it as a story and don't engage it, we miss the point. Because we need to look at the tendencies we have towards false gods. We need to look at the ways that we've constructed these golden calves in our life. We need to look at the ways that we have answered the call of, did God really say? Did God really say he'd lead you, Israel? Did God really say that he would do stuff for you right now in 2023? That you would have comfort and be safe and soothed and secure. That you would have a control over the things in your life. Did God really say that you would be without lack, that you would have stuff, gas in the tank, food in the pantry, a full house of people? Did God really say that you'd have settled forgiveness? Because bitterness sounds pretty good. The idols we see towards false gods. But there's also the tendencies like, like Aaron of false worship that, that I want to make sure I'm, I'm comfortable, that, that there's nothing hard that I have to do. Therefore, I'll make the bar lower of this spiritual journey because I want to make sure that I don't have to have any cost in it for me. The idolatry of comfort and of false worship. Aren't you glad you came to church? There is the inception of idolatry in this story, but thankfully the story goes on. The story goes on, and we see the second idea, intervening amid idols. Intervening amid idols. In this passage, uh, Moses is going down the mountain, and God says again, God says, hey, uh, this is the scene down there you're about to walk into. And he says, um, by the way, I'm, I'm out. Moses, these people are doing this stuff down there. I, I don't want those people anymore, actually. They don't, they don't want me as their God. They want this golden calf as their God. And therefore, I'm, I'm done. And I'm going to scrap this plan with the Israelites. And I'm going to have my new plan be through you. No pressure. I'm, I'm going to make a great nation of you, Moses. And Moses uh, begins to have a conversation with God. And the this, this story is not about just about how the human heart takes a mile when we're given an inch. This story of the golden calf and of Exodus 32 is, it shows us what God is about. All right, one well-known pastor said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if we take that thought and apply it to Exodus 32, which I think we should, the things at stake with idolatry in mind are God's glory and God's people. And he is committed to both. 
Uh, idolatry steals God's glory, and I mean steals. Again, Satan is not original. He hijacks God's good things. He goes in and he usurps it and twists it and thwarts it so that we all of a sudden are confused and are in this web that we've tangled. Idolatry steals God's glory. That's one thing. But the other thing too is that idolatry shatters God's people. It doesn't make us more whole, though it seems like it does promise that. It it actually fragments us. And so what we see here is that God says, I'm out. Because both these things that I'm committed to, my glory and my people, have gone awry because of the golden calf. And, and what we see here is that Moses doesn't say, hey, um, awesome, <laughs> they're gone. They complain a lot anyway. Let's, let's do your plan through me. He doesn't puff his chest up. He doesn't get arrogant and think he's the teacher's pet. What he does is respond and talk to God. And what he does is he goes to God and he, said, he intervenes for the people amid their idolatry. He has this sound relational intercession amid this severe relational transgression. He goes to bat for the people. And it says this in verse 11 and on. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with your mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and this, all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from disaster that he spoken of bringing on his people. In this passage, Moses never says to God, hey, uh, you're unjust to, to, to want to wipe your people out. Hey, you're wrong to do that. What Moses does is that he reminds God who he is. You are committed to your glory, God, and you're committed to your people. And so actually would be a beautiful next step is not to wipe them off, but to meld the two together because you are a God who has a deep character of mercy. And you're a God who loves to lavish your affection on your people. And what we see is that God mercifully engages his people through the work of an intercessor. Now, the question is this, does Moses change God's mind? Was God just bluffing about this whole wipe, you know, wipe them off the face of the earth, I'm done with them? Was he bluffing? And we, 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 need to, we could spend all day on this, but what we should note is this, that God's intention, as one uh, theologian thought, God's intention is not the same as God's decree. And it's this, God's decree is that before the foundation of the world, God had everything that goes to pass, he knew. And it's all for his glory. And one awesome thing is this, it includes you. But God decreed you. 
and that God decreed and made a plan that I'm going to send my son for them. And now in Exodus 32, we see that God makes an intention and kind of has this fourth sight to say, the people have sinned so greatly, I'm going to wipe them away. And that's not a decree. That's an intention. And Moses says, I'm not here to change your mind because God, you don't change your mind. You're perfect in all things. But he goes to him and says, God, I know you, and I know you're a God of mercy. And you know what? I think actually you are so committed to your people and your glory. One thing that would be beautiful is that the two intertwine right here, right now, just as it always has, and it always will. And God doesn't change his mind because he's not coaxed into doing something because of a new thought. Oh, I didn't think of that. Moses, thanks. We see what happens because God loves it when his people grab hold of his plan for them and his character and lean into it. Moses goes to bat for the people and says, God, you're God of mercy. Inject your mercy into them, even though they deserve wrath. Noah, in Genesis 6, when the world is going awry, and it is going awry, Noah builds an ark, and it looks foolish. And yet he leans into the plan that says, God will protect me and all that would like to join me. We see in Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see that he's sold into slavery because his brothers hate him. And they actually want to kill him, but he's sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt, and at the very, towards the very end of the book, he says this. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I'm leaning into God's story, his mercy, his plan, his glory. We see it also in David. That when King David was a little shepherd boy, and in 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, this great big story that he goes to the front lines. And again, he's the first Uber Eats ever. He goes and he brings his brothers food. And he sees how this big giant Goliath is making fun of his God. And everyone's tails in between their leg, legs, including King Saul. And he says, are y'all going to let this happen? And that's when the whole David and Goliath story happens. Because he's saying, God's people and God's glory can't be made small because of this giant that we fear. Esther, that there's a, play, there's a plan in place to kill all God's people. And the Old Testament book of Esther shows how her boldness and heroism goes to bat for the people because she was made for such a time as this. We see over and over and over again in the Bible that when there is intervention amid things that are riddled with guilt, that God loves to move because his people and his glory get to go hand in hand. Does God change his mind? No. Amid intervention, God does not change his mind. Amid intervention, we are changed. Moses is changed because he goes to bat for his people. When Mark stands up here and prays, or whoever stands up here and prays a prayer of intercession, we're not trying to change God's mind. We're actually trying to shape and form our hearts to God's heart. When we see the, lot, the transpiring events around us or inside of us, we're invited to shape our hearts to God's heart and lean into the fact that he is who he says he is. 
He's a God of mercy, and he's up to something for his people and for his glory. We lean into it. That doesn't diminish the reality or the rigor of sin. There's one part in this passage that wasn't read for us where Moses throws down the Ten Commandments because of what they've done. That's a severe thing. But what it does, we see in Exodus 32, the intervention and intercession makes much of the mercy of God, which leads us to this last idea. There's mercy amid idols. Mercy amid idols. When I was in middle school, I was suspended twice in two weeks. So in middle school, I was a, I was a suspended kid. In high school, I was a speeder. Uh, y'all shouldn't be listening to me. And I was suspended twice in two weeks, and I was ready. I had my bags packed. In my mind, I was getting expelled. And at the end of those two weeks, I went to the principal's office, and I sat there waiting to hear the verdict on me. And that conversation is forever tattooed into my head. I still hear the words that middle school principal said to me as a grown man. Because where there was guilt that produced a shame in me, she worked back with words of life and of love and of healing and of mercy. Because she reminded me with, with words that brought sanity and sobriety who I was when I couldn't believe it about myself. And what God thought of me when I couldn't believe it about myself. When you know you're not whole, when you know you're dead to rights, when you know you have guilt that riddles you, when you have a loud conscience, when you are that way and you brush up against the mercy of God, it will change you. Paul, in the New Testament, writes this. He says, in Ephesians 2, he says, all of us also lived among them, meaning the guilty, uh, the disobedient, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul is saying the more you know of your guilt, the more you know how bad you are, you can look at that, and then when that brushes up against the mercy of God, you will be changed. When you have nothing else to go toward your name but the mercy of God, it will change you. In Mark 10, there's a story of blind Bartimaeus. He's this beggar, and he, he hears about Jesus coming to town, and he hears he's passing by, and a blind beggar yells out, and he doesn't say, heal me. He doesn't say, hey, over here. He says, son of David, which means you're the Messiah, have mercy on me. In Luke 18, when there's, there's a story of the parable of the tax collector. And there's two people going to the, to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. And he says, God, thank you. I'm not like that tax collector over there, that guy. Thank you, I'm not like him. I do all this stuff. I, I give and I, I keep the law. And yet, the next thing we hear is the inside voice, the prayer of the tax collector. And the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
There is a deep calibration when you know how guilty you are to know the mercy of God. In fact, you are put in the paint to score because guilt and mercy in this thing called Christianity and in the person of Christ go hand in hand. And you know what I hate about mercy? Is that I have to know I need it to get it. That for me to get mercy and for you to get mercy, you can't have it if you don't think you need it, if you don't know you need it. And I hate being in need. I hate lack. I hate my check engine light when it comes on and says, hey, up here, over here, look at me, you're driving, but guess what? I'm saying you need to do something. I hate when my Bank of America says, hey, um, you're low on money and you can't do anything. You need to transfer. I hate being in need. And the problem with guilt and the problem with mercy is that it puts you in a place of being in need. I'd much rather have Jesus be the golden calf. I'll make him. I'll fashion him. I'll craft him the way I want it to be. And he will sit there. He won't talk to me. He'll just kind of sit there and I'll live my life around him. Yeah. I'll do what I want to do. And yet the person of Jesus is different than that because the person of Jesus is after you. And the person of Jesus is not after you to get you or to correct you or or to shame you. The person of Jesus is after you to say, I have purchased for you amid your idolatry, amid your guilt, I have purchased for you mercy. And actually, I'm so good at giving it out. Would you like some? And when your guilt encounter something as bold and beautiful as that, it will change you. To the point in which this lofty romantic religious thought of, hey, God's mercies, they're new every morning. It doesn't just become this thing you crochet and you kind of leave on the wall. It actually becomes something that's your daily bread because you know every day when you wake up, your guilt is not bigger than the mercy that's waiting for you from a God who is flowing from an abundance of mercy for you. Exodus 32 tells us who we are, but Exodus 32 tells us even more so who God is. He waits, he longs, he loves to show mercy to a people who never get it right and always need him. And the well of his mercy never runs dry for you, his people, because that's where he's most glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we can hear the story and uh, make notes about it and even grow cold to it and not want to engage with it. But all of this is in vain unless the Spirit comes and pricks our heart. And that's a dangerous prayer. I'd rather be sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai before a golden calf than standing before you because, Lord, the, the weight of guilt is strong. But because of the person of Christ, you look at us and you say, you are my beloved. And I know your guilt. I know what you've done. 
And yet I know my son, and I know what he's done for you. So Lord, may that beautiful song that's sweeter speak to our hearts more than what we've done and the shame that says who we are. May we, Lord, walk out of the tomb be just as you have. You left death behind. May we leave our idols behind that promises life but give death and follow in your wake. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. May we, Lord, walk out of the tomb be just as you have. You left death behind. May we leave our idols behind that promises life but give death and follow in your wake. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.